This is another thing that Tom does is he tends to start recording the like minute we get into the studio, and so this like little pre-roll banter yeah. is often it often ends up as the like pre-roll of the episode. Okay. Me rambling about a Game of Thrones board game that I played for seven and a half hours in Vegas. That was my favorite pre-roll <laughs> ever, by the way. It could be this one as well. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I am one of your hosts, Chris Toomey, and I am here live from RailsConf in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm joined today by Kevin Dice. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you gave a talk yesterday that you've actually been sort of on a tour with this talk, as far as I can tell. Uh, yeah, this is my third time giving it. All right. No, it's good. It, I assume it gets better each time, too. Much better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if it wasn't, then we'd have to talk about that as a side topic. Yeah, yeah seriously. The talk is about pre-evaluation and compilers and optimization within Ruby, but what I found really interesting, and we can certainly point folks to the actual video, one of the many videos of the talk. Yeah. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me is that your talk was a talk that was about a thing, but was actually about a different thing. Yes. Are you familiar with uh, Brett Victor's Inventing on Principle? I'm not. It's a fantastic video where this gentleman, Brett Victor, uh, gives a talk about he believes that people should be doing things on purpose and that we should be inventing on principle. And then he does this demo, but the demo is just the thing that caught everyone. It was basically like hot reloading of a Mario video game, like a code of sure, a video yeah, game. Yeah. And everyone was just like, that's amazing. But it's sort of the wrong takeaway. His whole point was we should just be doing stuff on purpose. This is what I believe, and this is an outcome of that belief. Sure. But your talk brought to mind similar ideas. Um, so can you talk about the idea behind the idea? A lot of it stems from my current experience. So I'm currently the CTO of Culture HQ. Uh, Culture HQ is a three-person company, mm -hmm. and I'm the only developer. So that means that every decision I make has to be in terms of developer speed. I can't make any compromises in terms of type safety, for instance, mm -hmm. or anything that would give me a better understanding or allow me to lower my bar for vulnerabilities in my code, it has to be about speed because I have to develop features quickly and I need to uh, iterate quickly. So when I'm really thinking about that, I'm thinking about things that can speed me up, <laughs> make things mm -hmm. faster. And one of those things is about looking at ways to express myself in code and not being limited in the ways that I express it, but still being able to garner the benefits of the fastest way I could have expressed myself. Mm -hmm. So I always go back to Fasterer, which is the gem that gives you, it's a static analysis tool that shows you little tiny micro optimizations that you can find, like replacing dot reverse dot each with dot reverse underscore each, which yes, is technically faster in theory, but I don't wanna have to remember that. I want to just write the code and express myself in any kind of way that makes sense and then have the language or the framework or whatever other tool I'm using take care of it for me. Right. It's interesting. I didn't actually realize that you're the only developer working with in your current context because my takeaway of your talk was very much through the lens of being on a team. And I still feel like I, I thought I heard the thing that you were saying, which was teams should not be having these conversations. Right. And so it's interesting the way I, I feel like that feels true at both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of my experience has been from teams in the past and being, you know, just down in the dumps of having to have conversations about every single RuboCop rule. And I've had meetings where I have sat with every single RuboCop rule and talked about like, you know, does this spark joy kind of thing. And there is 
certainly benefit to aligning everyone to those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I think that alignment is less valuable than just not having the conversation at all and then just sticking to one way of doing things. Yes, we are firm believers of that in ThoughtBot. We, we have a style guide and we have things that we say, but part of the thing that we say is that just following the style guide is more important than the individual rules. Right. Like one of the ones that I historically was very opposed to is single quotes versus double quotes. Sure. Which is just like, it's not important. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, <laughs> like, like you were saying, having a product-centric focus, making sure that you are doing the things to make customers happy at the end of the day. Yes. And single quotes versus double quotes does not affect that and yet we can get mired in these discussions and just stuck yeah. and spending a lot of developer cycles on that sort of thing so i loved that theme i also loved the honesty in the end where <laughs> so it was actually as i was listening i was sort of taking notes on my phone in hopes of being able to chat with you about some of the details and one of the main ones was like was it faster uh so preval is the tool that you introduced and it's a optimizing compiler or a step before the compiler within Ruby. It produces yeah. a different version of the code that then ideally has those optimizations replaced. But you're, as far as I understand it, the answer was no, not really, not faster. Yeah, it's not faster. I mean, that is one of the goals. The, mm -hmm. One of the goals would be to make it faster. And I'm sure that if I had more complicated AST passes that did things like method inlining or did things that like real serious compilers do, mm -hmm. not just side project compilers, that I'm sure there would be some efficiency gains. But the bigger efficiency gain to me is that I turned off faster mm -hmm. in my test suite. And I don't worry about it anymore because for all of those checks, it doesn't matter. It's just I can express myself either way. And not having to run that static analysis tool, which has its benefits, but not having to run it has yielded greater performance gains in terms of me being able to deliver a product. Mm -hmm. So that is far more valuable to me. Yeah, I, again, I think the, like, the story behind the story was so interesting to me in that like at the end of the day, this thing doesn't necessarily deliver on the core promise, but it does deliver on perhaps the much more important promise of now I don't need to think about it. Yeah. My guess is that your ideal view of the world is that Ruby were to get a flag somewhere down the road and all of these optimizations could be done at that level. Oh yeah. Versus, turns out you were fighting an uphill battle of complexities in the Ruby syntax or yes. yeah, language and the flexibility. way it works. Yes, <laughs> flexibility. So that was that was very interesting to me. Can you describe a little bit about how Preval works? Just because I think that the technical implementation is actually very interesting. Sure, yeah. So it uses Ripper, which is a built-in Ruby library. Uh, you can just require Ripper, and you run Ripper over a string that contains code. What that will do is generate an abstract syntax tree, which is just a bunch of arrays. And it just tells you the various node types that are involved in the parsing of the tree. From there, what will happen is Preval has a whole bunch of baked-in visitors, which is the visitor pattern, which is just comps way of saying it looks at everything in the tree. And if it matches a certain pattern, like for instance, an integer on the left, some arithmetic operator in the middle, and an integer on the right, then it will go and replace that entire binary node, it's just called a binary in that specific context, with the evaluation of that expression. And obviously that doesn't work in certain circumstances, but that's only if you're monkey patching arithmetic operators on integer, which I really hope you're not doing. <laughs> I'm sure it happens. Um, yeah. Like you said uh, in the talk, actually Rails does do that. Yes. <laughs> For good effect, but it's it's interesting going back to like prototype JS. And yeah. that was an example of historically a time where we monkey patched in a JavaScript sense everything. 
Oh yeah, the prototype chain got all kinds of. But I I feel like that was more a reaction to a lack of features in JavaScript. Mm -hmm and a lack of consistency of features across browsers, right? Because that was a lot of polyfilling, was mm -hmm. monkey patching the prototype chain. Whereas in Ruby, I don't feel like there's actually a need to ever actually do that. I mean, tell that to active support. I know, I know. <laughs> That's the thing. I wish those things were refinements. I wish mm -hmm. they were opt-in, but... And to be clear, when you say refinements, you're referring to the Ruby language Ru function. Yes, yeah. exactly. Or, uh, yeah. Basically, locally scoped monkey patches. Mm -hmm. um, but those didn't exist when Active Support came around. And, you know, I mean, there's a very serious argument to be made for developer speed when you have access to something like dot blank. And <laughs> if you're just getting up and started, there are a lot of benefits to having the Active Support core library extensions. But, you know, down the road, they tend to burn you. So you got to be careful. I don't know if they've changed over time, but I've I've achieved peace with uh, active support. Whereas other things like prototype versus jQuery was an interesting one, where prototype was trying to fight those inconsistencies and the lack of features by doing it at a very low level. Whereas jQuery, which I think won out, and however you want to think about that, right. it ended up wrapping things, and then that wrap the jQuery object. You're doing all of those operations, and granted, they did slightly different things, but. It was interesting to see that, and yet I find it odd. I'm always intrigued by contradictions in my own beliefs, and I'm kind of fine with active support, even though fundamentally I don't think I should be. I mean, that may be familiarity. Like mm. a lot of the time we just get used to things, mm. which is why my argument for formatters and things like that always comes down to, it's fine, you'll get used to yes. it. <laughs> Have you ever written any Elm Lang? Uh, I haven't, no. Elm's a, a wonderful language. I really, really like it, and it's informed a lot of my other coding. But they, as a community, have a formatter, so Elm format. Right. Everybody uses it. I do not like the format. It's the one <laughs> where, like, and I say it every time, I'm like, the only thing I dislike more than Elm format's format is not using the formatter of the language. Right. And I stand by that, but that is the language that tests me. There's just a ton of white space. Hmm. Uh, there's, like, two lines between methods. Oh, it's or, like Python. Yeah, even uh, even more so. I don't though. even remember the name of the Python for Pep something Pep or other. Eight, I think that, that's the yeah. one. And they like two lines, and that bothers me. Yeah, <laughs> but like you said, like you'll get used to it, and it's fine. And with Elm code, I find it actually does have an impact on like how much can I fit on a screen mm -hmm. on a screen that I've already constrained down to be like I'm not on the widest monitor, or tallest monitor in the world, and I'm sure. still like I can't really tell what anything's doing, and so <laughs> I I feel like there's substance to my disagreements, and yet. I still totally agree with the idea that that's not what we're doing here. We, we should not be just right. lean in and just accept it and, right. and go with it. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think the perfect world is you just express yourself in a way that the compiler can understand. And then it just takes care of it. You, you have an auto formatter like Elm format, and you, you have compilers that take care of everything for you. And as long as you're getting your message across, everything's taken care of. Well, I mean, I will say I'm very sad in Rubyland that we don't have an auto formatter. <laughs> if only we. <laughs> if only. Uh, so I'm, I'm subtly hinting at the idea that you have been working on a prettier plugin for Ruby. So using yes. prettier, which has taken the JavaScript world and a bunch of other languages at this point by storm, which is one of my favorite advancements in computer. Everyone seemed to agree. Like we somehow won that argument yeah. as a community. Like <laughs> JavaScript was just like, yeah, we're going to do this. And there's going to be very few configurations. And now you are in the process of making that work in the land of Ruby. I am. Yes. How's that going? It's going well. It's the biggest open source project I've worked on 
not that I've worked on, but that I have had a major contribution to. And uh, man, it has been a learning experience. There is a lot of different Ruby syntax in the world. I have watched as it's been developed, and I've, I've run it a few times on projects, and I've seen the things that it misses. And then yeah. uh, there was a particular one where I ran it, and here docs were being indented another layer each time I ran Prettier. Yes. So Prettier <laughs> Ruby was not idempotent, I guess is the word that I was looking for here. Yes. And it was just fun to watch as I would save the file. It would just move the here doc one level of indentation <laughs> further. And I was like, all right, that's a bug, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we worked that one out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's been definitely a, like a learning experience. I have slowly moved towards more idempotency. And uh, I, I feel like it's really, really close. Mm. Uh, really close. There is one <laughs> kind of generic class of bug that still exists. And if you look on the GitHub repo for it, on the issues, I've started tagging them, and it all has to do with comments. It's always comments. Oh. Comments break everything, because I make certain assumptions that, for instance, if I am looking at, I know this is an existing bug, and I actually <laughs> have plans to fix it, but if I'm looking at an array, and it's an array full of just plain strings with no spaces, then I want to replace that with a percent %w array, an array literal full of mm -hmm. strings, because I feel like that is more idiomatically Ruby. But if you put a comment on one of those strings, like next to it in the array literal, then it breaks. It, it just removes the comment entirely. And so I need to go through with a fine-tooth comb and put a comment on basically every single node type which, you know, it's only a small amount of 132 node types in Ruby 2.6. And counting? Or is oh, that, and counting. Do you, oh, like, for sure. Is there a distinct list that you can say these are the node types at this point in time? There is. It's in Ripper. Okay. Uh, you can look at it. It's in parser events. And uh, even that is broken down a little bit more from parse.y. But there is a definitive list, but it's being added to. I actually have a test in Prettier that I'm that I take care of each node type. Mm -hmm. But Ruby 2.7 is adding a ton of syntax. <laughs> and so, of course, that means more work for me on this front. So It's interesting to watch the project evolve because JavaScript, I think, is a... Well, basically anything else is an easier target to hit than Ruby. Ruby has... Yeah one of the most complex syntaxes. And I think the core of that is like Ruby is designed for programmer happiness. And so optional parens, I think that's an important one. That one, it says something. It's not just like fun or nice in my mind, but it's complex and yeah. adds a lot. And like trailing commas, when and can't, and where can here docs go? And way too many places, commas. as it turns out. <laughs> way too many places. That was one of the edge cases that I ran into. I would basically run the current version of Pretty Ruby over one of our internal projects and then try and run the test suite. And right now, I haven't actually run it on recent versions. And by the way, you've been doing a fantastic job of just oh, continuing you. to iterate and push this thing further. But it keeps, like, it can't run the test suite yet. So in my mind, that's the first big yes. hurdle. Yes, um, definitely. But it is an incredibly hard thing that you're trying to do there. Yes. Granted, you're getting to build on top of a lot of niceties that exist in the Prettier ecosystem. Yes, for sure. Prettier itself is... It's a pretty amazing piece of engineering, honestly. The idea that you would build this generically for multiple languages and not just build a JavaScript formatter. I love that idea. I love the idea that they created an intermediary representation of code as an idea and then know how to print it out. And so that intermediary representation, all you have to do to write a prettier plugin is to build into their format and then they just take care of it entirely, which is kind of beautiful as an idea. 
I was really fascinated by it. And it's funny because I started this project almost a year ago and I worked on it for about two weeks. My wife went on vacation <laughs> and you know, I, I, I binged programmed for this for a little bit. As one does. As one does. And I got pretty far and I got all the way up to the point where I had to handle comments. And then I stopped for about seven months because <laughs> turns out that's hard. <laughs> you hit a proverbial wall. Exactly. Uh, wall of comments too. What a thing to trip you up. Well, the real problem is that Ripper ignores them. They're not in the AST. For good reason. It doesn't make sense that they would be because they're not part of the code. Right. They're not syntax. They are, I mean... They, uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, are they uh, what, or so are they not? <laughs> you're working from Ripper, then how are you getting... How am I getting the yeah, comments? What's That's going a great on there? question. <laughs> right. So as it turns out, Ripper will fire an event that is a scanner event. They have scanner and parser events. Parser events you can think of more as AST nodes. Scanner events are more like end or def or any kind of a specific token. And so you can hook into the comments. And what I'm doing is I get the comment event, and then I check what state the parser is in. If it's within a method chain, if it's within a certain, any number of things. And then I try to attach the comment to the right node, and I guess wrong in a lot of cases. So people open bugs, which is great, and I put them on the right ones instead. But yeah, that's definitely the hardest part of the whole thing. This project has such an interesting shape to it in that it is a canonical version of, this seems like it should be really easy. <laughs> and in fact, there's so much subtle complexity under the hood. And even just like dealing with Ruby syntax seems like it would be a hard thing. But then the tools that are available and the yes. fact that like, oh, it turns out Ripper doesn't actually give you everything you need. You're like, oh, yeah. no. I mean, granted, it's wonderful that Ripper exists and is part of the standard library and yes. that can be relied on. but. It's definitely one of those things where the 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the way, and then the remaining 80% of the effort gets you the last 20. And <laughs> we are pretty far in now. I think I've handled every single possible thing I could think of besides these tiny little bugs. But the, there are so many parts of the Ruby language that I had just never even heard of. Block local variables. You can put a semicolon within the vertical pipes that allows you to declare a local variable that is outside the block but you want to change it inside the block and have it not reflect those changes once you get out. What the heck? <laughs> what the heck? Indeed. Who knew that even existed? I assume mats, but... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that's so that you're, you're interacting with things that are such edge cases, and yet Ruby has always had a very strong philosophy around breaking changes, and right. Ruby, like, we can add stuff, but we're probably not going to take much out. And yeah. so... Syntax, whether accidental or purposeful, has sort of accrued over time, and now you are like, okay, I, uh, all of it? All of it. All right, I guess <laughs> just all of it then. Yes. And I think that is really impacting the direction that Ruby's going in. And I, I think it's such an interesting conversation because, in my experience, I've talked to developers, and they would be fine with breaking changes. But at the same time, you know, Ruby has gotten more attention. It's part of larger organizations at this point. And the problems that larger organizations deal with are very different. And I think that's why you see so much discussion around types mm. and Ruby three types and type annotations and RBI files and all of the different options of which I have relatively strong opinions. Mm. I'm intrigued. We should, uh, I would like to revisit that topic, but yeah. digging into that idea a little bit, I think... When you ask someone in the moment, they're like, yeah, I'm working on a thing and I'm feeling pain by virtue of the ambiguity or complexity of the syntax. So yeah, I would be fine with breaking changes. But 
I think I'll, I agree with the take of being very purposeful in that because what I want is a project that I can revisit in six months and bump into the next Ruby version and not have that be a completely impossible thing right. to do. Not have it be Python 2 to 3. Not have the, the canonical one. The canonical uh, example. Although it's interesting, so the work that you're doing with Prettier Ruby and with Preval both use a similar technique of parsing to AST and then doing manipulations on that AST. Yes, absolutely. And there's all of the great work that's going on with Visual Studio Code and the language servers in the background, and they're doing the same sort of thing in this deeper semantic analysis. And then even code mods, I think is the thing that I'm thinking of. I don't know that one. So code mods are using the same idea, but given- Oh, JavaScript. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about, Um, yes. Which I think, like, Scala is another language that's in the midst of the, they're on the front side of a Python 2 to 3 type transition, a big breaking change, but they're being very purposeful about it. And I think they're looking at history and they're like, okay, what lessons do we take away? Right. But also they're trying to reduce the syntax and simplify. Scala is a language that has everything. It's multi-paradigm, it's functional, and it's object-oriented. It's got types. It's got a complex thing called implicits that do fancy things that are hard to describe in a podcast, but are, and frankly, I don't actually know how they work. It gets even worse with Scala Z. There's just absolutely... I would guarantee they have more AST nodes than Ruby does. (laughs) (laughs) But I think they're hoping to reduce that, and so it's interesting to watch for uh, the idea that code mods might be able to be a way to get people there. So just very briefly on code mods, they are parse the code into an AST, and then produce an alternative representation. So map a given, like, say ternaries are being taken out of the language. Then we take every ternary, and we transform it into the equivalent if-then-else. Right. And that's a thing that we can do with this sort of tooling that we can't do with, like, regular expressions or other tools. Or we could, but it's a very bad idea, and we should not. We couldn't. Actually, I'm going to say we couldn't. You could link to the uh, don't parse HTML with regex uh, stack overflow issue. (laughs) The greatest stack overflow issue of all time and for I don't know the 20th time in my life I will very happily link to that post but I do want to circle back now because you were uh, it sounded like there were the start of some hot takes about types I have some hot takes about types let's talk about them I feel like I might be on the other side so this could be some good podcast this is good I like types in typed languages Ruby is not a typed language. Ruby, the only requirement when you call a method is that that object responds to that message. It's not based around the type. You could define on the singleton for us individual object a method that does, has nothing to do with the overall class, or you can throw refinements, or you could have a delegator, or you could have any number of things, or just method missing. And so there's any number of ways that an object could respond to a signal, a message, or whatever you it is when you call it from Smalltalk. And very little of that has to do with the actual class that it came from. The class is just a list of methods. So I was looking at um, Mame and, uh, forgive me, someone else at uh, Rukaiki gave a talk about a very interesting project that they were doing where they looked at the instruction sequences generated from Ruby code. And they ran a interpreter over it that they wrote, another virtual machine, that would tell them the types of various method returns. But it was always based around like string or array or something. And that fundamentally bothers me because that will never be able to handle method missing. It, w- it won't, because that is not what Ruby is. Ruby is not fundamentally based around types. Now, the thing is, I don't really have a strong argument, because types gets you 99% of the way there. And it's honestly good enough for production, because if you could, if you could write type annotations, that would be good enough. But that's not where I'm at. I want to write, I have this dream. <laughs> I want to write a 
treat Ruby as another, as a front end, and, and then the back end would be another kind of thing that would run over it, and basically instead of 5.2s returning the string 5, it would return a pointer to a list of methods that this thing now responds to, and run it through, and see as it goes. That would be 100%. That would find absolutely every single flaw. It would see something like .findby, which can return nil, and it would see that you're not handling it. But of course, that's a dream. <laughs> it is a dream. It's interesting that it sounds like gradual type annotation and type inference and things like that, it's, but type inference completely. And my yes. understanding is, you do like at some point you have to. It'll be like, oh, this one I don't know what it is, and you have to fill in that blank. But I don't know if that's true. Mm. I I don't know. That's if a hot take. <laughs> it is. I don't know if that's true because the thing is, if you look at Ruby code as like just an idea of just a string, we have already written something that completely understands that code. We've written MRI, we've written JRuby, like those things fully comprehensively understand what it is that the code is doing. So fundamentally that means they understand the code at rest, but understanding Ruby code at rest is very different than understanding it at runtime. Whereas for languages like TypeScript as an example of something that's trying to do this or more strictly typed languages like Haskell and Scala, there's much more you can know at compile time. And mm. to me, it's really interesting looking at the distinction between ESLint and RuboCop. Right. And ESLint is a tool that I deeply value and deeply trust because it can tell me interesting, like, oh, you're right, that, that is not a thing. That right. object that I'm referring to, it doesn't exist. I didn't, whoops, that was a typo, and trying again. Versus RuboCop tries its darndest. And it does. by virtue of the dynamic runtime nature of Ruby, it just can't know. And there are constant times where I'm like, RuboCop, why did you not tell me about this? And it's like, oh, I couldn't, I didn't know, how could I know? Because of method missing and because of Rails defining all of the methods based on the database columns. Right. And so although we can understand the program at rest, a Ruby program at rest is much more different from its runtime right. than Which is others. why I don't want to understand it at rest. That is fundamentally flawed. We're and never going to be able to do it with static analysis. Mm -hmm. We have to take it to the next level and write something that will... So, so my, my biggest inspiration for this is prepack, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's, it's a JavaScript NPM package that actually has its own JavaScript interpreter built into it. And it will run over code, execute the code, see what was allocated onto the heap, and then rewrite your functions based on just allocating those things most efficiently. And it's just kind of amazing, but I want that. I want a Ruby interpreter inside my Ruby interpreter that will run things. Yo dog. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> that will run things and see what it is that's allocated, what it is that is actually necessary, be able to completely remove unnecessary assignments, see things that have side effects. Of course, this is like, you know, this is my dream. This is a dream. I mean, it's a good dream. It's interesting, though, because the projects that I'm associating with you in my mind are very much static analysis tools. Very much so. And very so it's much interesting so. that you're like, yeah, but that, I'm just hanging out there for a little while. I want to go somewhere better. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've been dreaming about this for a while, and this has definitely been the thing that's been I've been pushing toward. But I had to learn a whole bunch of stuff first. I had to learn the whole Ruby AST, and that was what Prettier was for. And I had to learn how to look at syntax as a way of generating code, which is what my talk from two years ago was vernacular, which was a whole wild ride in and of itself. But uh, yeah, this is what I, I want to get to eventually. It's bringing me back to what I think is sort of the theme or something interesting that I notice about your work is that there is fundamental underlying like philosophy. You have a philosophy of what you want for development and whether or not I agree with it, I'm just impressed with <laughs> that as like a purposeful approach to development. So thanks. Yeah. I, mean, I like a lot of the ideas that you're talking about <laughs> in addition. So. 
I have definitely had some folks that don't like these things. I have uh, sparked some anger, which has been kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, no, I definitely have the philosophy that I want people to be able to... Ruby is such a beautiful language for people to just come into and to just explore programming and get inspired. And, and in turn, I am inspired by them. And I want to be able to allow them to do things that may be inefficient to begin with, but at the end of the day, it shouldn't matter. They can just express themselves in any way that they need to, and then everything is handled from there on out. That's a dream. My dream is to be able to maintain an application for the foreseeable future. That is probably my core philosophy, and thus the reason that I come down on like, please give me types. Please yes. give me all of the types I can possibly get. Because I, I agree, there is a cost initially when you're working in a system and trying to add types. Adding types is particularly hard, but even writing a new system and having to think about the types and, and constrain yourself additionally with that. And it's a different skill set and a different approach, but I've personally, I've been working with TypeScript a bunch and it's been interesting exploring that and seeing what I get out of it. And the development experience is just fundamentally different in a way that I was sort of surprised by. It's more different than I would have expected. Right. Uh, and having that compiler feedback and having someone watching over my shoulder and supporting me as I make large sweeping changes and refactorings to the fundamental data models and things like that, that's probably the thing that I care about most. And that's what puts me on the side of types. But I understand. And, and frankly, like coming from a Ruby background, that freedom, that expression is an interesting thing. Although I don't know that it's directly incompatible with types. but I don't think it a, is. But I definitely know that I personally have a blind spot. I have a huge bias because I have only worked on small teams. The largest engineering team I've worked on was around 30 engineers. And that is a fundamentally small number of folks. And the team I was on was actually a sub team that was only four people. And none of it was remote as well. That's, that also factors in. And so having everyone in the same room, four people working on the same project, that inherently lends itself to you can have a lot of abstraction and flexibility, but everyone still has the mental model in their head. And the types really help on legacy applications with a ton of developers. In Ruby, you can do things where you can patch object, and you can shoot someone in the foot from 100 miles away. But if you have types, at least you can only shoot yourself in the foot locally. Mm. You don't impact some external part of the app that you had no idea you were even touching. This is true. Uh, it's interesting, like a lot of my work with types has been on a team of one, and I've even found it useful there. But I think coming back to the fundamental idea of you have a philosophy and then stating your biases, like it's important to be able to disagree on the internet productively. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's a hard thing to do. The internet isn't necessarily ideally suited to it, it turns out. No. But I think that's critically important. And I think stating biases and saying like, here's where I'm coming from. And then here's the hot take that I have. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think you, you've done a great job of explaining that and like why, what are the factors that are driving your decision making and your, your philosophy? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I made a couple folks mad, which was interesting. Preval invoked a little bit of ire, and some folks were telling me that it was um, encouraging bad programming practices. For instance, by not failing the build for dot reverse dot each, which is O of 2N instead of O of N, that I was encouraging people to not go and learn the better way of expressing themselves. And I just disagree with that because I didn't have to learn memory allocation in order to be good at Ruby. I feel like as engineers, we're just going to keep abstracting things until it doesn't matter if you're all the way down the stack. Like I don't need to fundamentally understand everything that's going on under the hood as long as I can express myself in some way. I mean, the languages are just gonna get higher and higher level, or at least that's the hope for me. <laughs> It's an interesting trade-off in there, and one of the things that comes to mind is the Zen of Python, 
Uh, mm. Particularly explicit is better than implicit, and there should be one and preferably only one way to do things. Oh, yeah. Uh, and again, this is one of those contradictions that I hold simultaneously in my head and kind of look at everyone's and I'll be like, huh, that's weird. Because I believe in almost everything the Zen of Python says, and then I write Ruby, which is in contradiction <laughs> with almost all of it. Uh, and that particular one of there should be preferably one and only one way to do things is really interesting. And what you're saying, like, I don't, why do I care, though? If the words that I would use as a human to describe to another human the thing that I need to do are X, Y, and Z, it's really nice if the language meets me where I'm at. And Ruby is the canonical example of a language meeting us where we are and almost letting us write prose that just happens to be understood by a compiler and a, a virtual machine. Yes. So I, I think I agree with that. Although it's interesting then the other side of, like, Prettier changes my code. It does. And tells me, like, no, 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 just do it this way. And I like that too. So I don't know. We're just piles of contradictions, I guess. The funny thing is, I think I'm really okay with that Zen of Python rule for computers. I think it's a really good idea for there to only be one way of doing things for languages. But humans inherently express themselves in myriad ways. So what I really want is you to be able to express yourself in any way and then the tooling to move it towards the one actual way of doing it. It's so much easier for language designers if there's only one way of doing something. And then they can do all kinds of crazy optimizations and that's why if you look at like LLVM or things, they move things down to smaller and smaller sets of different kinds of instructions. They don't use like massive sets of instructions because if you have fewer things, it's easier to know about and easier to optimize. And so for the Zen of Python rule, I agree with that. There should only be one way of doing things, but we should be able to express ourselves in myriad ways and then move down to that one way of doing things. Have multiple different ways of expressing ourselves target the one way that actually is the most optimal. And Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we do that with languages, right? Elm compiles down to JavaScript and TypeScript compiles down to JavaScript. We're expressing Everybody ourselves. compiles to JavaScript. Everybody compiles to JavaScript. Ruby does. With and then Opal. soon we're going to skip past JavaScript and go to WebAssembly and uh, yeah, keep pushing <laughs> it to lower and lower levels. But yeah. Yeah, I think I see that. I think it's important to be able to hold contradicting ideas and examine them and, and poke at them and be like, huh, why are both of those things in my head? Yeah. That's weird. And at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> I'm still going to contradict myself and do things. Like I, I gave a talk like three or four years ago about how you don't ever need pry and how you can just use binding.irb and there are plenty of tools baked in, but I use pry all the time. <laughs> like fundamentally, I understand that I, I don't need pry, but I, I still use it. It's still useful. And, you know, I love Prettier and I'm writing Prettier for Ruby, but I don't use Prettier on a lot of apps. I use it on some. But it's a tool for consistency. And if I'm the only one working on it, then I'm internally consistent. So I don't particularly care. Oh, interesting. That is a hot take. I use Prettier on every single thing I've ever written <laughs> since I learned about it. But my reason isn't consistency. My reason is I don't want to care. And what I've found when I work with Prettier, this is very similar to working with compilers, where I find that my workflow changes. I don't care about indentation structure, how many things are on a line, any of that. Like I care deeply that we wrap at 80 characters. That's the thing that I believe. That's sure. a belief that I hold. Not everyone does. I don't think everyone necessarily has to, although yeah, you probably should. But <laughs> that's the thing that I believe, but I don't really want to do it. Like if a method signature gets slightly longer, I don't want to have to be the one to then wrap each of those to a new line. Right. And I love that Prettier just does that for me. It takes something like I'm a Vim user. I want to be as efficient with my editor as possible. That's not the interesting part for me. Like hitting the keys isn't the interesting part. I like to do the thinking and then get that into the code as quickly as possible. And Prettier is a tool that takes a bunch of that off my plate for me. So it's interesting that you don't always use it. Yeah, in a app where I'm delivering a product or anything professionally, I will pretty much always use it. But 
I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't really have a strong reason. I guess when I'm developing things for a side project or just for fun, I, I almost enjoy that process. It's weird. It's almost like grinding the coffee beans instead of buying them mm. pre-ground. I just, I enjoy that process so much Ooh, of okay. like artisanally indenting my code. I know that's that's almost like masochistic, but I just, I enjoy programming so much. And the process is so enjoyable for me that I don't even necessarily need to get to the end product if it's not something I need to deliver professionally. If it's just something for fun, then I'm just enjoying the whole thing. Interesting. I love that. Uh, I don't agree with that, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, that, I get that a lot. <laughs> Which is, but again, that's fine because I do weird stuff with my terminal and editor, and I don't think it's necessarily the most efficient, but it brings me joy. Yes. Uh, DHH's opening keynote was there were a lot of different themes around joy and finding that and doing things for that reason. Right. And I agreed with many of the points in the talk. It was a very interesting talk, I'll say that. But uh, I, there, I loved it. Yeah, I really did. And we'll certainly link to that as well. But yeah, that joy can be should be a reason. We we sort of have that option in our industry to probably do things in a way that makes us happy a lot of the time. And so I like that yeah. as a reason. Yeah. I mean, very much like I use TextMate for all of my development and I get shamed. There are people that will shame me and I don't study the latest hotness a lot of the time and I don't use the latest tooling and I don't have very good debugging technique. I use puts more than anything else. But, you know, it, unless I'm delivering a product and, and I have a serious deadline, I'm just going to take some time and enjoy it. And take the long way around. Take the long way around. The scenic route. I, I think you see things that you might not normally see if Ooh. you're trying to use every single latest tool. I think you get a deep understanding if you take your time. Smell the roses a little bit. I like that. Okay, so then I'm going to put you to the question. Okay. Does Prettier Plugin Ruby use Prettier? <laughs> It does. Okay. It didn't for a while, <laughs> It right? didn't for a long time. It didn't until like two weeks ago. I remember looking at it, I was like, this JavaScript code is in a shape that is uh, different than I would have expected. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, I actually recently started having a couple more contributors. And it got to the point where I said, okay, it's time. Uh, someone used a function literal as opposed to the fat arrow functions mm -hmm. in JavaScript and oof, I had a reaction. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh gosh, it bothers me. I, I understand that fundamentally they're different based on the binding, but dear Lord, that bothered me. And I was immediately like, okay, it's time to introduce Prettier. <laughs> it's time to bring some consistency and to not have people care about it. Will Prettier make that transition, translation? It won't because it's fundamentally different. I mean, okay. the scoping rules are different, right? right? So it, it can't, which is actually very interesting now that you bring that up <laughs> because there are scoping differences with Ruby that I should not be changing, but I am. Ooh. Yeah. Well, okay, so I want to dig into that a little bit more yes. because there's both semantic differences, which I imagine you are taking your job very seriously and the great responsibility that is on your shoulder. So I assume you're doing that in a, you're like, ah, technically they're different, but it doesn't really matter. Right. But you now are in an interesting position where you sort of get to be the arbiter for what I hope and believe will be the thing, the answer moving forward. It's been so an interesting thing is it was moved into the prettier organization. So it was. now that is a huge vote of faith in the project and brings sort of that brand recognition that I think will allow this to be the thing that catches on within the land of Ruby. But Turneries? Turneries. <laughs> and that's a small example of more generally, you are now making some decisions, some stylistic I am. decisions. I am. How do you think about that role? And I want to answer that, but first I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Sam Fippen's RB format, Ruby format, however he's calling it now, which is a pure Ruby 
not a version of Prettier Ruby, but it is an auto formatter. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's still in its early stages, but this is not the only answer. I know Rufo also exists. Yes. But yes, okay, to go back to your question, yes, Prettier has an interesting philosophy in and of itself that they are unwilling to add options unless there truly have been flame wars in the past. Saying cool. that basically, if Prettier had existed when JavaScript was first invented, they would have never have allowed any options. But because the communities have allowed themselves to solidify into multiple options, they allow that configuration. So I'm trying to go by that. I'm also trying to go by RuboCop, actually. Mm. So especially when the project first went out, every single time it was formatted, I also shelled out to RuboCop to make sure I wasn't violating anything. Mm -hmm. I've since removed that because it wasn't necessary, really, for the development of the project. But I am trying to go by the Ruby style guide, which is on the guy that developed RuboCop. His repo has like the Ruby style that's guide. Of, or that, that's I the think, one, yeah. yes. So I'm trying to go by what people have generally accepted. But okay. that being said, yeah, I mean, I like ternaries, and I'm making a certain judgment call that they should be in there. If you can fit them on a single line, currently it will do that. I assume, oh, okay, this is more of a question than an assumption. Nested ternaries or anything like that is going to be a no, right? Uh, nested ternaries is going to be a no okay. for sure because there are only certain nodes that are currently in Prettier Ruby. There are only certain nodes that are allowed to be in a ternary clause. I only allow a certain number of things, and most of them are just single variable names or single literals. So, like, a question mark one colon two. So very simple things. If you were to put a ternary inside of it, it would now be, it would break immediately into an FL statement. Okay. I think I can deal with that. It was interesting when I came to ThoughtBot, no ternaries is the rule. That's one of the things in our style guide and I didn't like that. Yeah. Uh, but I came around and I'm like, oh, okay, I see the logic and I'm fine and I'm happy to enforce that. And it will be interesting if Prettier Ruby sticks with this because I think we will, as an organization, adopt it. I hope so, frankly. I want there to be something that wins. Yes. I want there to be an answer to this problem because having moved to a bunch of JavaScript projects and then come back to Ruby, I'm like, oh man, I have to format my code. Yeah. And thus far, my experience has been that none of the existing ones are sufficient, especially when compared with the experience with Prettier and JavaScript. Right. And I guess I do have a somewhat probably unexpected take that I don't care if Prettier Ruby wins. Ooh. I don't. Okay. To me, it is more important that the Ruby community has an auto-formatter. The Ruby okay. community needs this. Languages these days should have a marketing department. It's crazy mm. seeing the proliferation of languages and people just being mean, shall we say, on, you know, orange websites that are just unnecessary. Like, Ruby should have an auto-formatter as a presence in the development community so that people can point to it and say, this is the Ruby auto-formatter. I wanted to start from Prettier because I liked it and because I thought it was an interesting project, but if Rufo gets to the point where it's very fast and everyone uses it, I'd be fine with that too because then I would just have a Ruby auto-formatter and I'm fine with that and I can move on to other projects for the benefit of the Ruby community. That seems to be a theme across all of it. You're like, I wish this existed. I guess I have to do it, but if someone else were to take this up, that would be better for me so that I could oh, focus. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that as a philosophy and um, the way that you have detached yourself from these projects and yet are still putting in the work to drive them forward. So yeah. well, thank it's you for fun. that. <laughs> it's a good time. So now the million dollar question, when can I gem install Prettier Ruby and just be able to use that with confidence on my production apps? You can gem install Prettier as of yesterday. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's the one I've been waiting for. So yes, you can gem install prettier. It still requires node on your system. It will always require node on your system, right? Based on the way it's built. Technically, there is a PKG package NPM library that will 
compile it for a system using Docker and do a whole bunch of random stuff where it will like somehow bake the node interpreter into an executable. And I was playing around with that for a long time. And then I, I thought, you know, how many Ruby devs have Ruby installed but not Node on their system? Increasingly uh, fewer and fewer. It's got to be a small number. And so I, I just trashed that entirely. And I just shipped the necessary JavaScript with the gem. And it just works. It's fine. Yeah. And I think it's critical to have that gem wrapper because I don't feel comfortable telling the rest of my team, hey, you have to npm install this thing and then gem install this thing and then and, I feel like and that have was a package too... JSON even though you're not using <laughs> yeah right yeah so but yes I'm fine with Node being a thing that I have to have because that's I assume OSX and other distributions are shipping with Node at this point right I would assume they are I would assume it's also an old Node version but I know that most people have Node on their system I'm just not worried about it but yeah you can gem install now that'll work. <laughs> I have a massive comment refactor that I've been mm. working on for, I don't know, how many months. And uh, that is the last thing before I'm going to officially declare V1. And I'll have to come up with some kind of breaking change just so I can make it V1 without feeling bad about I mean, you can just, No, you can say it. My view is you can say this is V1 and I'm, I'm asserting that. And by virtue of that, I will behave differently moving forward. Versus it's behavior change, not a yeah. So I view anything in the zero dot as like, hey, um, we haven't one owed this yet, but once you go to one oh, that's a meaningful thing that says something. So I'm fine with you being like, and this is one oh, yes. Well, yeah, I, I have two things I want I want better comment handling, which won't break things, and it'll be wonderful when we have it. And we're I'm so close on that. And then I want method chains with multiple methods that don't fit within 80 characters. I want them broken up into one method call per line. Mm, yes, that was one of the things that stood out to me, uh, but also seems very complicated to get that right. So. Oh, yeah, it's dumb. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you got to go down the tree, build up a whole list. It's a whole thing, but whole thing. it's going to be good. Well, thank you for doing that work on our behalf. Yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> awesome. Well, Kevin, with that, I think we can wrap things up. Where can folks find more of your work on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter at KDDice, which is K-D-D-E-I-S-Z. And uh, I'm also on GitHub. And we'll include links to that and everything else that we've talked about in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.